As I was growing up, I often wondered, as I went to school day after day, why history class was such a big part of my education. American history, world history, the Civil War, things like that. Learning all these names and dates that seemed to have no bearing on my life or future. The other classes seemed to make sense. Reading, writing, arithmetic, things like that. It seemed like history was the one class that was always there, but didn't really seem to fit into what the schools were trying to do in my overall education and helping me for the future. But then one day it all made sense when someone explained that one of the reasons we learn history is by doing that we are able to avoid the mistakes of the past. I think the most common example cited was the ability that we now have to recognize and prevent another Adolf Hitler, for example. It wasn't until much later that I was taught that there was actually another side to the coin. You don't just learn from the mistakes of the past, but we also learn from their accomplishments. We see what they did right. For example, understanding our country's constitution helps us hold on to the very foundational freedoms that we have as citizens of the United States of America. We can appeal to the historical and legal precedent to establish how life should be governed today. And that's actually, as we continue studying the book of James, what James does in our passage this morning. As he goes back in history to prove that even in Old Testament times, true faith was evidenced by works, the doctrine that he is teaching us in our passage over the past two weeks. And he does this to continue his argument that faith without works is a dead faith. To be clear, not that works save, but that a faith that truly saves will result in fruit, in works, in obedience. Would you turn with me to James chapter 2, verses 21 through 26, as we finish off this series on faith works. James chapter 2, verses 21 through 26. James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This morning we're going to be looking at three history lessons. Three history lessons for today's Christianity. We're going to go back in history to see the precedent set for us for today. In other words, we're going to look at three Old Testament lessons on New Testament works. Three history lessons for today's Christianity. would help to be reminded that James is writing to people who are ethnically Jewish and were religiously Jewish, but have converted to Christianity. And so though the example of Abraham and Rahab have great significance for us as Gentile or non-Jew believers, we can see how it would have even greater impact for those who were raised learning about these heroes of their religion and their culture. The first history lesson for today's Christianity is the classic examples. And I do want to give a bit of warning. I don't want to scare you. We are going to be all over the place today. We're going to be looking at a lot of verses. I'm going to do my best to make this clear. And I'm going to try to give you some of the background so you have an understanding of some of the theology behind what we're seeing in these Old Testament scenes rather than just looking at the scene themselves. But the first is the classic examples, and we're also not going to really take this passage verse by verse in order. 
So I want to look at these two Old Testament examples of faith before I go ahead and explain James's point in bringing them up. They are examples of faith, but also of works. And both Abraham and Rahab are in the list of heroes of faith that we find in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith hall of fame, if you will. And in that chapter, over and over again, we are given examples of people who by faith obeyed God and did wonderful things for His glory. And the fact that these two are among the list of names in Hebrews 11 tells us that their faith was not only real and affirmed by the New Testament Scriptures, but they were demonstrated, the faith was demonstrated by works. Again, so much so that they are set forth as examples of true faith to us today as New Covenant believers. Now, these two specific individuals were very important to the Jews. Abraham was the founding father of the Jewish people, and as a result, one of the most significant individuals in Israel's history, and one of the most significant people in our Bibles. Rahab was a woman who was an unlikely hero. She was a harlot, a prostitute. But she is also set forth as an example of faith, and was a person that historically was a source of fascination for the Jews. Let's begin where James does and look at the first example of Abraham. James refers to him as our father, as he is the father of the Jewish people. But Galatians 3 and Romans 4 also tell us that he is also the father, spiritually speaking, of the Gentile believer, and we'll look at that more in a bit. Being so important in the plan of God, there is much that we can say about Abraham and even more that we can learn, much of which points to faith and works. But the specific incident that James references is in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham offers up his son Isaac on the altar. Let me read for you again James chapter 2, verse 21. He asked the question, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? And the question, by the way, is phrased in the Greek so that an affirmative or yes answer is expected. I'm going to have you turn with me to Genesis 22. But first, as I mentioned earlier, I want to give you a bit of background. In Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3, you have what is called the Abrahamic covenant. You have God making a promise to Abraham, and that promise, that agreement, is known as a covenant. This is one of the most important covenants in the Scriptures, the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic, meaning pertaining to Abraham. Covenant, meaning a promise. I'm going to read for you Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where we see this covenant made. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What we see in the Abrahamic covenant are four things that have been or will be fulfilled in the nation of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham. So for Abraham, the four parts of the Abrahamic covenant were that he was promised by God descendants, okay, kids, grandkids, and so forth for many, many generations, as we have seen in the growth of the Jewish people. Secondly, he has promised land. Thirdly, he has promised a nation, the nation of Israel. And fourthly, he has promised blessing and protection from God. And we can even see that today in the fact that Israel is being protected by God despite every single country around it desiring its destruction. Now that's Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The covenant is actually put into effect later in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21. It's reiterated in Genesis 17, and then it's reiterated again to Isaac 
Abraham's son in Genesis 26, and then Jacob, Abraham's grandson or Isaac's son in Genesis 28. Now in Hebrews 11, there are several instances of Abraham's faith that are mentioned, but it is the promise of descendants that is pertinent to our topic today, especially Because when the covenant, when the promise was made to Abraham and his wife Sarah, saying, you shall bear a son, they were very old. Abraham was very old. Sarah was very old. And not only was Sarah very old, she was barren. In other words, up until that very old age, she was unable to bear children. In fact, when Isaac was born, they were 100 and 90 respectively. So important is this aspect of the covenant that God even changes his name from Abram, which means high or exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude or father of many nations. Now we know that Abraham had other children, but Isaac was the only son of Abraham with his wife Sarah. He, Isaac, was the promised son. This is why, even though he had many sons, Hebrews 11 refers to Isaac as Abraham's only son because Isaac was the one through which the covenant, the promise, the descendants, the nation would go through. The biological son of Abraham and Sarah, the only one. He was the one through whom the Abrahamic covenant was to be fulfilled. Now, with all of that as background, let's take a look at the actual scene that James is referring to, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 18. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, and we're talking about the scene in where Abraham brings Isaac up to the altar to offer him up as a sacrifice to God. Let me start in verse 1, Genesis 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now you understand that we are a living sacrifice. This was a time when animals were literally killed as offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. So this is not figurative here. As far as Abraham understands, God is asking him to kill his son and burn up his body as a burnt offering to the Lord. Verse 3. So, Abraham argues, no. Abraham resists, no. Abraham says, but what about the covenant? No. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering. Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine? Even those of you without children, you can imagine what is going through his head as he's chopping those logs that he knows is going to stoke a fire and in his mind to burn up his son. Okay, let's keep going. And arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, so the two people he brought to help with the journey, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad, referring to Isaac, will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. So Isaac is carrying this wood. And again, just imagine, Isaac doesn't know what's going on. You can imagine what Abraham is thinking as he sees his son carrying this wood up to where he is supposedly going to be sacrificed. Verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, 
But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Foreshadowing, of course, of Jesus Christ. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And in the Hebrew it says, then he uttered a phew. No, I'm just kidding. It's not really there, but you can imagine. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And we understand, of course, as a side note, that that seed was ultimately ended up in the DNA of Jesus Christ. And so that is how he blessed the entire world. So in addition to the clear foreshadowing of the provision of Jesus Christ as our ultimate sacrifice, what we see here, which James alludes to, is the faith of our father, Abraham, not only trusting God to the point of being willing to sacrifice his only son, his only son with his wife, but trusting God to fulfill the promise of descendants even after the killing of Isaac on the altar. Keeping in mind that when Isaac was born, it was already a physical miracle because they were both so old. He trusted God. He believed the covenant. He believed the promise. And we aren't given insight into what he was thinking, but he trusted God that all these promises would still take place after he killed his only son, who is now older, which means Abraham and Sarah are older. So even as it was a miracle that they would have a child, that she would give birth at 90 years of age, 91 that there was faith there that even if this kid is sacrificed on the altar, it will happen again even though it's years after the miraculous birth. And we see Abraham just dripping with faith, but that faith is seen in works, one of which we see here. James gives us another example in Rahab. James chapter 2, verse 25 says, in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now the story of Rahab comes when Joshua, who took over from Moses, sends two men to spy out the city of Jericho. They have come to the promised land. In their way is this large city of Jericho. And the story is found in Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Would you turn there with me? Joshua chapter 2. Verses 1 through 21. If you go to the beginning of your Bible, you have the Pentateuch, which is a fancy word for the first five books of the Bible. The sixth book is Joshua. You have the record of Moses and the wandering in the wilderness, and then Moses, Joshua takes over for Moses. So you have Joshua. We're in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And again, I want to read the whole scene for you. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. 
So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So somehow they heard about the spies. Verse 3, And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Go, king, hurry up. Maybe you can catch up to them. You understand the way that these fortified cities were. The walls are not like a wall like this. It's a huge wall. Uh, You can actually see some of these still in, in various parts of the world where they're wide enough where there'd be like a small, what we would call apartment, so people could actually live in the wall. And the reason there's walls is because it's a fortified city, and so there'd be big gates. And when the gates are closed, no one's getting in and out. And that kind of gives you a preview, a background of why they had to be let out the way they were. We're in verse 6. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, and here it is, her faith, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There's her faith. Verse 12. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, Go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. And this is great. She even shows them, tells them how to avoid being caught. Verse 17. Then the men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to which you have made us swear unless when we come into the land... You tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. What is happening there is they're saying, we can't do what we're promising unless we know where you are. They wouldn't be able to come back and be like, oh yeah, that's the house. They wouldn't know, right? There's so many houses And there's all these people she's asking them to not kill. They know they're coming in to utterly destroy. So they said, you got to give us a sign so we know where you're going to be. And you better all be together so that we can not kill all of you. Okay? Verse 19. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house... His blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. In other words, I agree. Verse 21, or second part of verse 21, so she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I like that. She does it right away. She's like, I am not going to forget this one. 
<laughs> I'm going to do this right now. So ultimately what we see is that Rahab not only acknowledged that the God of the Jews was the God, the real God, but she also trusted Him for physical deliverance. Hebrews 11.31 is where Rahab is mentioned. It says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So, we have James setting forth someone whom we would expect to be an example, Abraham, but also someone we would not expect, Rahab, a prostitute. And these two serve as wonderful reminders on either end of the spectrum of the grace of God. It doesn't matter where you came from or what you did. It doesn't matter how badly you blasphemed God before you came to know Him with your mouth or even with your career like Rahab. True faith is available for all, and all with true faith will have works. And so... We see these two examples, and I want to move on because I haven't really explained the importance of these two stories yet, at least not in the context of James's point. So let's go to our second history lesson for today's Christianity, the clarifying explanation. In verses 21 through the first half of verse 25 in James 2. Again, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? Now, that is a phrase, justified by works, that you can see why Martin Luther saw that and said, no, 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 wait a minute. I thought it was justification by faith alone, not faith plus works as his former Catholicism taught. Justified by works. Let me explain this phrase because when James uses this phrase, justified by works, he is not using the word justified as we conventionally think of it, when we talk about salvation, or to put it another way, he's not using it in the same way the Apostle Paul uses it when he speaks of justification by faith. Justified has two meanings. And in fact, uh, in a very practical way, this hits home for us because perhaps the first time you ever heard that phrase, justification by faith or justified by faith, it was the first time you heard that word justified used in that way. So there's two meanings. The first is declared righteous. We get this in the context of the Bible, in the context of salvation and the gospel. It's how we use it in regard to salvation. We were unrighteous, but now in Christ, God declares us righteous, justified. The second meaning is how we tend to use it outside of talking about faith when we use it in the workplace or in our normal life. It means to vindicate, to, vi to provide proof of something that has been stated or that exists in the Christian circles, to provide proof of righteousness. So when someone questions something that is true about you, they're doubting it, and then there's proof provided, you say, oh, then I was justified in what I did. Right? That's the second meaning that we're talking about here. My boss was angry that I took that risk, but when the client came back happy, I was justified. I was proven right or righteous. It is this second definition that James is using. In other words, in context, by offering up Isaac, Abraham proved that he had a faith that resulted in righteous behavior. He had been declared righteous by God because of his faith before he did this. But God, as we saw in the very beginning of Genesis 22, tested him. He passed the test. He was proven 
to have an existing faith. Verse 12 of Genesis 22, the narrative we read earlier, gives us a better understanding of this use of justification when the angel of the Lord says, For now I know that you fear God. Now you have proven to me that you fear God. That it was said of you that you fear God. It was said of you that you have faith in Him, that you trust Him. But now you are vindicated. Now that statement is proven true since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Perhaps this will help us understand this whole thing. My son does not take a math test and pass that math test in order to learn math. Taking that test and passing that test proves that he has already learned math before. They don't just give tests to teach. They teach and then give a test to prove that they know what they're supposed to know. That their claim, I know math, is true. The test, offer up your son Isaac to prove I have faith is a true statement in the life of Abraham. So, this test of Abraham's faith showed that he already had a righteousness from God going in. And we, we see this all along because he wouldn't have risen up early three days prior to chop the wood if he wasn't already saying, God is good, I trust him, he knows what is right, I trust his plan, I'm going to do this, as horrific as it is. He already had faith. James 2.22 says, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Now this is the first time in this section that James brings up faith Uh, in this illustration with Abraham. But he does so in a way that shows us that he has been assuming that Abraham has faith all along. He's been assuming that Abraham's faith has been there. To his more general point, James is saying that this faith was more than just an intellectual knowledge of God, agreement with what God had done for his people, but was true saving faith as evidenced by his works. Those works, James says, was working or were working with his faith. Not for salvation, but for sanctification. So as to, as James continues, perfect his faith. Now, although James has clearly taught that faith produces works, that's not his immediate point here. His point here is that after those works have been produced, they in turn grow and perfect your faith. Literally, bring to completion, bring to maturity, bring to perfection. You see, works are not needed for salvation, but they are needed for spiritual growth. Sanctification, we call it. In the end, Abraham's faith and life reached its intended goal because by pursuing holiness and trusting God throughout his life, he continued to grow, he continued to mature, and his faith was strengthened and developed. For us, it's the same idea that we see in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We see a similar idea of moving to perfection within the fellowship of the body in Colossians 1, 28. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete, mature, perfect in Christ. There is spiritual growth after justification by faith. And this is why in verse 23 of James 2, he writes, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, 
and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So the scripture that was fulfilled here was not a prophecy, but the teaching on justification by faith, specifically in the life of Abraham. Now when Abraham put his trust in the Lord, he received the status of righteous from God. This was done before Abraham's works. It led to his works. And Paul makes a point, Paul makes a point in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham was declared righteous even before he was circumcised. This is very important because circumcision is like the mother of all works for the Jews. It is the work that is emblematic of their being a Jew. And we see in God's plan that he was declared righteous before circumcision so that, as Paul says or implies, the Jews can't say, oh no, he was righteous because of this work of circumcision. No, his faith made him righteous and it was before circumcision was even introduced into Abraham's life and thus the Jewish people. Circumcision did not earn God's favor. And we see Jesus even condemning that as the Pharisees and the various Jewish leaders were saying, no, they need to be circumcised. They need to be circumcised. Even in the early church after Jesus was gone, this was a point of contention. Do we circumcise them? Because it was such a big part of faith. And that's why there was clarification. No, 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 no. It's not a part of earning God's favor. It is a response to that. It is a result of that. Faith works. By the way, that it seems like a small thing for us, but it is huge. The fact that Abraham was declared righteous before circumcision is why he is the spiritual father of non-Jewish believers. If it was based on circumcision, we'd all be toast. We'd all be in trouble. Or we'd all have to be circumcised. God purposely did it before, and thus he could be our spiritual father because he was declared righteous before God by God, before any of the works that all the Jews then had to follow. So, back to the offering of Isaac. It was a proof or justification of the existing faith and righteousness of Abraham. And this righteousness came out of Abraham's believing or trusting God. In turn, that faith was, James quotes, Reckon to him as righteousness. It was placed, literally reckon means placed into his account. The ESV, instead of saying reckon to him as righteousness, says counted to him. NIV says credited to him. Both the same idea. And the word indicates that this, and we know this, this word indicates that this was a crediting of righteousness that was not inherently his, it came from someone else and was given to him, which further emphasizes what we already know. It's a righteousness that is by grace. It is given. It is not earned. And what James is quoting here is Genesis fifteen six, to prove his point that Abraham had works with his faith. Paul quotes the same verse to prove that Abraham's faith preceded his circumcision and was the basis of his justification rather than his circumcision, rather than his works. And this is why he is not only the physical father of the Jews, but again, the spiritual father of all believers. I mean, it's, it's powerful stuff. It's amazing stuff. Right? As you read through Genesis, you're like, okay, you don't notice that. And then you see Paul say this, and it's like, wow, that is so powerful. One of the amazing results of this was that Abraham was called the friend of God. I'd like to be called the friend of God, wouldn't you? Especially in those days when someone would not even flinch at being told by God to sacrifice his own son. I want to be on his side. And we see this term referred to 
uh, Abraham in 2 Chronicles 27 and Isaiah 41.8. For us today, we know that works are a natural desire within the one who has saving faith, within the believer. But we also know that it can be hard sometimes. It takes effort. It takes dedication. And right here, we get the answer to the dilemma of, I know I should obey, but right now I just don't have the energy to. I don't have the desire to. Pastor, how do I get the desire that I once had to obey? My answer, obey. I don't feel like reading the Word. I haven't gotten in the Word. I just don't have a desire for the Word anymore. How do I get that desire again? Read the Word. That's what James is saying here. Yes, it's like starting a cold motor, which really doesn't apply to modern cars, but you, some of you get what I'm saying, right? You've got to kick it and kick it and kick it. And finally it goes, and sometimes it's a little hard. Right? It's the same thing with anything. Right? How many of you had that New Year's resolution and you dusted off those running shoes for the first time in six years? You decided to run in January when it's cold, your lungs are burning, you got half a block. Like, I think I'm going to die. But if you kept with it, it's what, February 19th now? You're cruising. You hit a mile, you hit two miles, three miles, right? It may be hard at first. And you're questioning, like, I don't really want to do this. Am I doing it right? Because my God looks at the heart. Keep at it. Because works are going to perfect your faith. Same thing with anything, right? Any sort of routine. I remember back in school, or some of you take vacations. That first Monday back to school or back to work, that's rough. You've been sleeping till noon for a week, and all of a sudden you've got to get up at 6 a.m. again. That's rough, but pretty soon it's just normal. Laughing at people who sleep till 6.02, right? You get going, and you grow, and you're sanctified, and you're matured. And the conclusion James makes from the throwback to Abraham is seen in verse 24, James 2. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we look at Rahab in verse 25, we saw the same idea. Rahab was justified by works. Again, James is in no way throwing out the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The faith he is referring to here is the false faith that he has been addressing all along, a faith that does not result in works, the faith that may have an intellectual belief in God and the gospel, but has not fully trusted in him for salvation declared and followed him as Lord, and thus it has no fruit, it has no works. To put it another way, James is contrasting faith without works and faith with works. He is not contrasting faith and works. Perhaps some words from John Calvin will help. He says, As Paul contends that we are justified apart from the help of works, So James does not allow those who lack good works to be reckoned righteous. That's a clarifying explanation. What we see in these two models of faith, they had works because they were previously declared righteous because of their faith in God. And thirdly, our third history lesson for today's Christianity is the closing emphasis Closing not just this section of looking back at the Old Testament, but this whole section that we've been looking at over these last three Sundays. We have seen this morning the classic examples, the clarifying explanation, and finally the closing emphasis. Again, same point, different words. Verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We don't need to overthink this. James is not pulling us into that debate regarding soul versus spirit versus body. He's simply using the Old Testament idea of the spirit being life-giving breath, and without breath, a body is dead. In the same way, faith without works is dead, and dead faith cannot save. 
This is a very powerful illustration. When taking into the context of professing Christians who are in our lives, perhaps even in our church, who are in fact putting their hope in a dead faith. When speaking of the unbeliever, the Bible says that they are spiritually dead. Physically alive, physically thriving in many cases, but spiritually dead, spiritually speaking, they are a walking corpse. This has ramifications across the board. I use that phrase often with singles. Don't marry an unbeliever because you're marrying a corpse. When it comes to looking at our own lives, are you, Christian, living a heaven-bound faith? Are you a Christian with true faith that is animated by works? Or are you a corpse that is merely deceiving himself? Are you drinking with eagerness and growth from the fresh, eternal springs of living water, floating the cesspool of an algae-covered swamp, thinking somehow that you're in the same water as the rest of us? It may sound harsh, but as I said, I believe two Sundays ago, this is not a criticism, my friends. This is an invitation. The consequences are too great. This is not a matter of, well, he'll learn. I don't want to hurt his feelings. It's just, you know, you just let him have the candy. It's fine. He'll have a crash. He'll learn. Ned, oh, he made the wrong turn. Don't, you don't need to call him. He'll get there eventually. This is not something where I am willing to spare your feelings. Because, to be honest, if there is a reality here, which there is, of people professing faith, but maybe have works in the sense of they're doing the right things, but it's not based on a true desire, it's not based on a true saving faith, and I don't warn you about that. Your small group leader doesn't warn you about that. Your friend, your mom, your dad, your whoever it is, the new visitor, the stranger that just happened to sit by you because there's no other seats this morning. If they don't warn you about that, we think it's love because of what society says about feelings and safe spaces, but it's actually a form of hatred and the most wicked kind. What kind of person would I be? Not even a pastor. What kind of foolish, selfish, idiotic hater of men would I be to see that you are destined for hell, thinking you're going to heaven, and just want to spare your feelings? This is a problem in our society. When it comes to heaven or hell, I could not care less about your feelings because I care about your eternal soul. And so should you. Friends, faith without works is evidence of a dead faith in an individual who is destined, destined, thinking that they're going to be greeted by the Lord only to be told, I never knew you. As we close this series, I am begging you, examine your heart. It does you no good to fool us, to look good, to feel like you're part of the fold if there is no use in your dead faith. And I would challenge you and encourage you because I know, I know that you know people, that the Holy Spirit is right now and over these past two Sundays been convicting you to talk to. And you don't know how because you know they're going to be crushed. You're worried they're going to fight back. 
you know that they're going to list all these things and all the times they've gone to church and the camps and the retreats and the way they've served. But in your heart of hearts, you see no fruit. I implore you, by the grace of God and for His glory, you need to graciously, lovingly, biblically, and firmly talk to those people Share the gospel with them and invite them, not condemn them, invite them to repent, but this time for real. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you that we are undeserving. We thank you that it is by grace that we are saved and that we have a desire for works and we pursue those works. Help us to excel still more that our faith may grow, that we may fulfill our partnership with you and your Spirit to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Sanctify us, Lord. Grow us. Develop in us a greater hatred for sin and a passion and love for obedience and the joy that comes with it, the glory of God that is part of that. Help us to examine ourselves, Lord, that we may see to gauge through the Scriptures whether or not we are truly saved, whether or not our faith is real. And for those of us who have people in our lives that have a false faith, may we humbly but lovingly, boldly tell them the truth, call them to repentance, show them the reality of the cross, the faith, the true faith that they can have. Give us discernment, Lord. Give us wisdom so that our words are clear so we don't somehow even unintentionally indicate that work saved, but May we be clear in what the gospel is and the role of works in that. In all of this, Lord, we ask for the spiritual growth of your children and the salvation of the unbelievers in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand as.